0: Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSAI and the host of the CSAI podcast show. And I've got another great episode today in the security leader interview series I've been doing now for some time. And today I've got Matt Wickhouse, the founder and CEO of Finite State. If you don't know Matt, in addition to being an entrepreneur and a technologist, he is also a husband and a chef and a world uh, a traveler and a foodie and a water sports enthusiast. So Matt, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Derek. Uh, thanks for the kind words. Uh, might have overstated some of my abilities there, but i uh, but I appreciate the intro.
0: <laughs> you know uh, there's so many uh, little uh, touch points with you uh, with my own background. My first startup was in Columbus, Ohio, and you're in Columbus, Ohio, doing uh, I, I hate to call it a startup. so that's a really interesting company now, five years old. Uh, but it was a startup once upon a time in Columbus, so that's uh, awesome. Uh, and I can't wait to get to that you know part of our conversation and talk about how that sort of got created. Yeah, Columbus of all places. I, I yeah. have a, lot of, a lot of fond memories there. I met my wife there and lived there for many years, so
1: it's a small, small but growing group of uh of company founders in Columbus that yeah. has uh, grown pretty exponentially over the last decade for sure.
0: Yeah, I think you know I started um LodgeKeep there in Dublin, Ohio in nineteen ninety eight. Um and there wasn't uh even the you know the startup culture was much, much smaller. It didn't there was one. Security startups. I don't know at the time. Maybe there was another one. Uh, there wasn't much, and I've I've I moved away, uh, you know, some years ago to Silicon Valley, and then now in Georgia. But but I've kept you know sort of track of things. And there's from a funding perspective, and there's all sorts of maturity cycles going on, uh, you know, in in Columbus in the years that I've been gone. It's it's been pretty pretty fun to read about. And your are smack dabbing, yeah. you know, in the middle of that, one of the driving driving forces. So absolutely. Yeah, let's go back. So hey, I would like to just sort of, uh, you know, my, my my joke and shtick is that cybersecurity, you know, folks are, are modern day superheroes of a sort and superheroes have backstories. So let's get into
2: yours. Uh, you know, where, where'd you, where you grow up?
1: I grew up uh, in Ohio, actually, outside of Toledo, a small suburb called Maumee, and uh, grew up, spent my whole life there up until uh, until college when I Moved uh, down to Columbus to go to Ohio State, and so you can see that I've moved a lot in my entire life. The, the, the whole two-hour drive from from Toledo down to Columbus.
0: Yeah, you can say you're here. a Buckeye. I I lived there a long time, and my wife's from there, and I I feel Buckeye-ish, but I don't know what I can claim I'm a Buckeye. You definitely can.
1: I definitely can claim that. You know my. First year in school was the year we won the the national championship in football, and uh, the whole campus misbehaved in a very severe way with riots uh, after that happened. Um, but uh, yeah, so I yeah, so I was you know uh, immersed in Buckeye culture very very early uh, actually prior to coming here, and uh, yeah, I've, I've stayed put in Columbus ever since, uh, despite lots of travels and uh, both for business and and pleasure. Uh, I've, Never left Ohio. So, what did you? Uh, what did you go to? Battelle? You know what?
0: Before that, I, I sometimes ask, as sort of curious, the precursor stuff. Did technology play a role um, in your life? Did it cross paths before you know before college?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, when when I was in school, uh, I was was well rounded. I, I did very well in school, just pretty naturally. Um, uh, was I think second? I was second in my class in high school um math and science were always my strong suit Uh, i started programming computers early i was in like a gifted program in elementary school and started writing code in basic and i remember like programming it and having it having it do things and and repeat back to me and being just fascinated by it i think i bought myself a c plus plus book when i was in seventh grade and wanted to just learn how to program and i remember creating a blackjack game using, uh, you know, Windows uh, forms and stuff back in the day and then uh, actually did a fair amount of programming just kind of on the side when I was in high school. And, uh, and then when I was in high school, we were in a class, I can't remember what it was, uh, but I'm, I'm getting old now, so this will date me. But there was a class where there was a, there was a documentary about the early days of Netscape uh and what startups were like and we watched this video and there are these people sleeping under their desks and (laughs) drinking coffee all the time and just stressed out and i remember watching that saying you know i've been really interested in computers and programming and engineering but my god i have no interest in being involved in this scene whatsoever and i'm never going to do that i actually instead i was focusing some of my time on architecture and uh and drawing and actually doing some 3d graphics work and had a part-time job after school working for an architect and decided i was going to go to ohio state and either study architecture or engineering i wasn't sure and decided to go into engineering and then it pulled me back into computer science uh uh, you know a couple years into it despite my insistence i was never going to go down this pathway
0: and so computer computer science programming
1: startup all of those end up coming into coming into play <laughs> it, it's a reverse psychology i guess um i don't know what happened exactly um well, i do you know it's been quite quite a fun journey but i think it was for me in school you know i didn't want to go into computer science and software engineering cuz i felt you know i'd done the programming stuff i probably had this negative view of it from that documentary that scarred me i went into electrical engineering at ohio state And what I really, what I was fascinated with as a kid, in addition to, you know, I I enjoyed programming computers, but I was always fascinated with national security for whatever reason. I don't know if it was because I liked, you know, spy movies and TV shows and stuff, but I always kind of wanted to go into uh, national security. And so what happened was early in my My freshman year at Ohio State, I went to a career fair and I was doing really well in school at the time and met with Patel. And I had never even heard of Patel before coming down to Columbus and and going to Ohio State because, you know, about 15 years ago, they were very under the radar and quiet and just this kind of secretive research institution right off the Ohio State. Uh, you know,
0: Matt, I, I also, before I moved to Columbus, had not heard of them. Um, subsequently, over the years, had multiple touch points with them and realized how you know, it, large, and that's not saying very much. Maybe you can give just a little bit. Of, I'm sure we have listeners who have not yeah. heard of Patel
1: and just how yeah. far that goes. <laughs> I can kind of walk you through my, my experience with it because it's probably the same as some of the listeners. A lot of people have never heard of Patel, uh, but they've been around for almost 100 years now. They are a multi-billion-dollar nonprofit research company that does primarily um, government and national security work now, but they've also done a lot of work in the uh, private sector. Uh, but my experience was bumping into them at a career fair where I was also going and, and meeting with, you know, CIA and NSA and Lockheed Martin, who had booths that I and I knew all of them. And I said, "Well, there's this." Apparently there's this place in Columbus that's also doing national security work. I'll talk with them. And I had this pretty unique background where I had done a bunch of 3D modeling work for the architects and I also was strong in software development and I was working on an electrical engineering degree. And they I met the folks at the booth, they brought me in for an interview literally the next day and said we have an internship we're trying to fill. And so they're like here's you know, drive, walk over here from campus. It's not very far and, and we'll set you up for an interview. And uh, at the time, walking into the lobby of Patel, when you don't really know what this organization does, was crazy intimidating. Cause it's just this big, like stainless steel map of the world in this big empty lobby. It's like a scene from like any sort of weird spy movie. Uh, when you walk in there, you can't take your phone in. They're, you have to make sure that there's no cameras. And then they walk you down all these hallways. into. Eventually, I got to a building that seemed like it was, you know, the whole of a submarine. And I was down in a basement uh, interviewing with people. <laughs> and I was, like, simultaneously terrified and thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever experienced. Like, I hope I get this job. And, and, and
0: I did and started working there. And those, I, those wands from Men in Black, if you didn't take the job and flash through
1: <laughs> it, you would never remember any of this. I mean, it wouldn't have surprised me, and that was because it's such an unknown place. Yeah. It, it was unknown to me. I had no idea there was a 20 building campus right off of Ohio State with you know guard posts around it, and uh, and they were doing all of this really cool national security work that was really important. And you know, eventually, I, I got in there and learned a lot more about it, and it's uh, much more benign than you think. But at the same time, there are some of the smartest people in the world solving really hard problems. Uh, you know, they were sitting right in the backyard of of Ohio State, and I had no idea. But to to kind of round that out, Battelle today uh, is a multi-billion-dollar company. They, from from an energy standpoint, a lot of your listeners probably know them because they operate the national laboratories for the Department of Energy. M- almost all of them. There's a handful that they don't, but. Oak Ridge National Laboratory and Lawrence Livermore and Pacific Northwest and NREL and all of these these laboratories are managed by Battelle. That's one of their big businesses. And then the other piece of their business is supporting national security customers and the intelligence community and Homeland Security, DoD in various uh, research and development programs. They also do work with uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, medical devices, uh, even some consumer uh, stuff. Apparently, you know, like the CD ROM was invented by Battelle, the the barcode was invented by Battelle. Um, uh, I forgot
0: about a presentation years ago. I I
2: think.
1: uh, Yeah, yeah. The Xerox machine was incubated in Battelle. Yeah. Um, yeah, Xerox was. Incubated by Patel, spun out, and then the return on that investment basically is what allowed Patel to get really large. So, yeah. great, very interesting company.
0: You were already doing then, you put the internship, so you're in finishing school and the computer science degree, but also already starting doing things there. I think that's an interesting yes. model. You know, I don't know, you know, the quantity of those sorts of opportunities that are out there, but that's a great, I mean, talk about how that worked for you. I mean, that was a fast track to knowledge, to, to hands on knowledge, right? Versus the I finished the degree, I start looking for a job, and there's clearly lots of people who've had to do that. You were sort of already enmeshed and stayed there for what twelve years, almost thirteen, thirteen years.
1: Yeah, thir- thirteen years. Yeah, uh, that is. I am a I'm a big believer in the power of internships, especially uh, when you're trying to learn what you want to do with your degree as you're working on it. I I would say my experience at Patel was I would typically learn things on the job before I would learn them in class and so then my classes wanted up being a lot easier or sometimes they were very boring which would be problematic for me because I would lose lose my focus in in class but I would learn these in a very practical setting and then I'd go apply them in a more theoretical setting or vice versa and it's it's a really powerful combination when you can do that we you know at Finite State have hired numerous interns and given them a very similar experience we've had people that we brought in who were working on math degrees or, or recently finished it, who had no programming experience, learned to program on the job at finite state and wound up being some of the best developers we, we had in the company. And so I think it's, it's a very powerful paradigm when you're, when you're learning to have a combination of hands-on experience and the classroom experience and they play off of each other so well. Uh, And it's really low risk for companies to bring in interns and it's really low risk for interns to try out companies. So I think it's a it's a great
0: model. You know, I like I'm glad this came up today, because one of the things we do talk about is, you know, people earlier in their career path saying, what do I do first? Or where do I go? Or how do I break in all those sorts of it's a sound of the same question. What move do I make next? And so. This is an interesting one, which is seek, seek it out. Go, go, start asking around. Either in the academic circles, they may know where some of these internships are, or the other direction, target some companies that you're interested in and find out if they have internships. But either way, that's a way to start cutting one, cutting one's teeth uh, earlier potentially, uh, or breaking into the industry. Do it that way. That, that's a method, a good one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think it's uh, it's an incredible way to to learn and round out your experience and figure out what you want to do. Uh, in in life, because you're gonna you're gonna see pretty quickly what it's you're gonna when you're in school, you're told what it's gonna be like in in the career field that you're going into. When you're in an internship, you're actually experiencing it, experiencing it. You're surrounded by people. you're able to see and be immersed in that environment. and uh, and you'll know. like you'll understand at least what that company's culture is like, what it's like to do that job. Yeah. You'll have mentors who are around you who, by the way, I've been so blessed with in my career to have amazing mentors who were able to teach me not just, you know, the technical skills, but what it's like to work, you know, in a team, in a company, uh, which was a completely foreign notion for me at the time, you know, to working working inside of a big company. Uh, I've had some great people around me who helped turn me into the
2: leader that I am today.
0: That's a topic Started I always
2: mention, so I'm,
1: I'm glad you brought it up.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how those came about formally, informally, programs like here's your mentorship program or seeking somebody out for coffee? You know, what were all the ways that those came about giving and receiving, Uh, you know, both both directions? I, I think it's I, I share your your belief that it's it's yeah. it's a huge in, in, you know ingredient in almost anybody's uh, journey. It's a high quality ingredient, I think. Um, how Yeah. Did your, yeah. How did that play out? How does it play
1: out? Maybe it's still going on. I think it, it, it plays out differently for for different people, obviously. For me, what happened, uh, so at Patel, you know, my first day on the job, I, you know, had to figure out where I park and how I get in. And eventually I I, I meet my, uh, who, the person who became my mentor, Scott, uh, meet him in the lobby and he walks me back to the office and it's like, you know, we're going to get you a computer, get you set up in your cubicle at the time and and started asking me, you know, you know, do you know how to program in this language? Have you used Visual Studio before? And I was like, I know, like, I, I really, <laughs> I'm kind of lost on what's how to start here. And he's like, no problem. We're going to get you situated. We're going to, we're going to work through it. And, um, he was very hands-on in getting me set up and was willing to put the time in knowing, you know, believing in the potential that I had, even though I didn't have the experience. And, uh, and that's what created a good, good mentor. And, I will never forget. You know, a couple weeks, even a couple weeks in, uh, you know, I was writing some code. I had learned how to how to contribute to projects and check it into. You know, at the time, going way back, I don't even think it was Subversion that we were using. Uh, it might have been CVS that we were using for version control. Scott came over and he's like, "Hey, we've got to talk about your code." And I said, "Okay." And he said, "Look, I'm going to tell you something now that you need to take with you." He's like, "You." Can't ever get offended by feedback on your code. Like, people are going to have opinions. You're going to have more experienced people who are going to be looking at what you're doing. You can never take it personally. You need to look at it as we're trying to build the best thing possible, and everyone has positive intentions on this. And that was a lesson that actually, like, I was so happy to learn early because it definitely shaped the way I look at things. And I still, today, I would say when I talk to other leaders, in the company the thing i talk to them about the most is feedback and how to give feedback to people inside of the organization and how different people need to receive it differently but that everyone has positive intent because we're we're in it together trying to to improve and that's something that i learned like within my first few weeks from from a really great mentor that i had
0: yeah that's that's awesome um, how, how, what what role does mentorship
1: giving or receiving play
0: today in your life
1: i actually have evolved it in multiple ways so i still have uh, mentors uh, and friends who have have gone from being a mentor to being a peer to being a friend. Yeah. Uh, one of my bosses at Patel, uh, still a, a really good friend to me and a mentor who I can call and I'm like, you know, I've got this kind of sticky situation I'm trying to think through right now. What do you think about this? I also actually have uh, an executive coach that, that uh, coaches our entire leadership team where we have structured sessions working through you know, how we work together, thinking about the psychology of leaders and the team and how we communicate, how we, yeah. uh, how we take actions and plan uh, that, that we invest in. Uh, his name is also Scott. Uh, he helps us a lot. And so uh, I personally believe all leaders should should have coaches the same way, like, you know, professional athletes, even the best of them have coaches. Uh, it's, it's important to to always get that feedback. And then, I also look to to the rest of my leadership team to hold me accountable and uh and give me feedback when I can be doing better and
2: when we do the same you know vice versa yeah
1: yeah um, and then obviously I have a lot of people in the company that that i I will spend time with and try to coach and mentor uh whenever i can
0: yeah well that's that's a that's a great share I think that's i I like the way you shared that because i've run into people who feel like i'm I've now reached the level where i don't need you know this preconceived notion of what mentorship is like okay it's not career advice or where to find your cubicle and there's there's all sorts of mentorship or resource access and it, you know that can be had at all levels and so yeah it's it's over a lifetime i i don't know that i could ever arrive at a place there wouldn't be things i'd still want to learn from other people that know the thing i don't know and, yeah. and i like sharing it as well i find myself in that stream constantly of of upstream and downstream and and um i'm i'm quite happy
2: to be, you know, to be in that flow.
1: I, you know, I would add the, the, the thing that's, that's really useful The the analogy actually that, that my
2: coach likes to use is
1: it's hard to see the picture when you're inside of the frame and what a mentor can do for you or, or a coach or a peer or a friend, they can, they're, they're looking at what's going on from outside of the frame and they can give you that perspective that you can't see sometimes when you're in it. Sure. And uh, that can be invaluable
0: in a lot of situations. Yeah. Yeah, perspective that's outside the, the current yeah. l- loop. You know, you did a lot of things at Patel. Um, I know that at the end, your title was CTO Cyber Innovations. You know, I don't know what story you might share or if there's something pivotal, sort of especially cybersecurity-oriented that happened or or that, you know, that you recall, um, you know, what kinds of things there, you know, that you were working on. Um, but did any sort of filter up in that period of time?
1: Yeah, so I had a really unique uh and and great experience at patel so i started as an intern i pretty quickly even as an intern took on uh some pretty uh some technical leadership roles on on projects my my first several years were all focused on actually on computer graphics modeling and simulation Uh, one of the big projects i was working on was building a simulate a real-time simulator for um eod robots uh the robots that would be
2: used to th-
1: dispose of bombs in the field yeah. in, in iraq and afghanistan and other other areas and so we basically built a video game that, that was based on a physics engine that we created ourselves um that would allow the robots to move around on tracks and like climb stairs and fall over and disarm bombs and uh it was really rather complicated and uh and so i spent a lot of time on that doing uh some pretty advanced stuff with uh gpu uh, computation in the early days of that and that eventually moved me over into uh another area which uh we'll call like signals intelligence where they also wanted to use gpus and other types of computation to do other things related to signals intelligence and uh and so I started working on classified programs that i can't you know I can't talk about uh, in any detail uh that were basically high performance computing uh signal processing, signals intelligence uh using new types of uh, computation at the time. GPUs were not super programmable, so it was uh pretty novel and uh And then I got pulled into some other cyber programs that were more on the collection side of things uh, from a a signals intelligence standpoint. We had some small programs that we were working on there. And as I was building out a little bit of a portfolio of technical programs that I was running, I was sitting at my desk one day and uh, we had a lab that we had set up and we had a handful of people that were working on it. And the executive vice president who ran national security, who was like my boss's 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 boss, called my phone and said, Hey, Matt, we're, we're, uh, we're thinking about starting a new business unit uh, focused on cybersecurity. Uh, And I've been talking to people and everyone says, you're, you're the guy who knows knows about this cyber thing. So we've decided that we're going to send you to a leadership development program, and we're going to stand up this new business unit, and you're going to be the technical lead. And David, who's my friend now, is going to be the business unit manager. And how does that sound to you? And I said, Who is this again? Is this, <laughs> this, this is Steve? Uh, I'm pumped. <laughs> why are you calling me? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what happened. Literally, uh, the board of directors at Battelle had been talking to the executives that are saying, All of these other defense uh, companies have cyber businesses that are thriving, and Battelle's not investing in it. You guys need to do something. And so they said, "All right, how do we do something?" And they looked around, and I was the person who was <laughs> leading some technical programs in the space, and uh, and we were kind of off to the races. And I took a one week long leadership program that was a mini MBA, and uh, learned how to make PowerPoints instead of write programs, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and learned, you know, did like a ninety day strategy workshop with with the folks who were involved in standing up the business pitched it to the executive committee at patel and then um, that led to them investing tens of millions of dollars a year into a brand new business unit that uh that i was uh, one of the the main technical leaders for is um, cyber innovation up- is that what that unit was called yep yep the cyber innovations business unit is yeah. that still
2: what it's called I mean is that it is yeah they- yeah okay. yep i think they have
1: a few hundred people now we started with 20 uh when we when we formed it and uh built out new office space new skips for classified work uh stood up new locations uh outside of columbus uh, hired a ton of people actually imported a lot of people into columbus from other places and uh started doing some really interesting work on on really cool cybersecurity problems, uh, doing research and development across the the full spectrum of cyber intelligence and uh, and cyber defense.
0: So it's it seems that that's the moment, and that from that time forward, cybersecurity has been has been your primary focus. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yep, um, it's uh, I love it. Uh, I found that you know it it became a passion kind of before that, like some of the problems I was solving. Mm-hmm. Reverse engineering and and figuring, you know, vulnerability discovery, uh, hardware analysis, and uh, all sorts of fun stuff like that. We had facilities for decapsulating chips and using, you know, focus ion beams to do things to hardware, and uh, it was all fascinating. I loved it, and uh, and then just kind of was given this amazing opportunity to spend all of my time doing that and teaching lots of other people how to do it and leading. Uh, turn, going from, you know, a, a software developer into a lead, a leader very, very quickly, which is a very bumpy road, I would say, but um, uh, but but a great opportunity. And uh, by the time, you know, I spent another five five or six years after that point at Patel, uh, and we had started with twenty. And I think by the time I left, we were at uh, right about a hundred and fifty people uh in that in that organization that we had grown so so pretty quickly
2: so let's
0: talk about you know that's a person could stay there you know indefinitely doing that sort of thing and be quite satisfied with the you know sort of the 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 breadth and depth and sort of interesting you know advanced technology but you you um you left um and and there was Mm -hmm. a step before finite state you know, what, what was, what led up to that? You know, we, we know there's a lot of people in our community, you know, I know anecdotally just from all the conversations I have now all over the place of people that think about, you know, I, I've been in, you know, large company for quite some time. Now I'm thinking about going, you know, somewhere else or going out on my own. And, um, and there's fears, and anxieties about that. Yeah. What was your catalyst, you know, what led to leaving and what
1: did you do first before you founded Finite? Yeah. So in my, you know, five to six years in the, that leadership role at Patel that culminated in me being the the CTO of that business unit. It was a, kind of like a startup uh, inside of a, an 80, 90-year-old organization, yeah. uh, which has its upsides and downsides, but we had a lot of funding available to us, so it was less startup like from that standpoint, but everything was new in Greenfield, uh, which, which I loved. Um, as it grew, it became less like a startup and it was more of a business unit, which is the whole point of it in the, in the first place. So it was a success. I wound up eventually choosing to leave because I like to build and I like to grow things. And it started getting to the point where I felt like I probably wasn't the right person to just kind of operate it. I felt like from a technology standpoint, from a research standpoint, I'll say kind of loosely, the intelligence community, especially on the collection side, on the more offensive side of things, didn't need to innovate very much, because the same things kept working. And uh, and for me, I actually like to solve hard problems. And so we did actually spend some cycles solving hard problems. We we did some really cool work with uh, supply chain security and detecting counterfeit and malicious hardware in the supply chains. Um, we we did a lot of work on automotive cybersecurity in the early days and helping. Uh, auto companies with uh, security architectures and pen testing and um, detection of of possible attacks on vehicles. Uh, and so I'm really proud of what we what we did. but a lot of where I was focused, um, my work started feeling a, a bit more repetitive. And it also started to concern me that as we were looking at the different types of systems, looking at vulner, looking for vulnerabilities in different places, the embedded devices, the ones that were the most critical that you would find in like an OT network or in critical infrastructure or IoT kind of home devices, all of these things that are powering physical stuff, they tended to be the most vulnerable. And each new version of an iPhone that came out was way more secure than the last version, very hard to to get into each new version of windows that came out much more secure than the previous one but when you looked at embedded it was literally regressing uh, yeah. the, the ability for anyone uh, to find vulnerabilities there was getting easier because they were moving from a, a hardware centric design into general purpose computing with software and they were using old very vulnerable versions of linux and real-time operating systems that had no security built in and so we had this the flood of all of these devices onto the market that were incredibly hackable and no one knew about it or cared about it and most back then no one even thought about them
2: as computers
1: they were just like you know devices that are hanging out and and they do things They're cool. let's get more um, of them <laughs> yeah yeah and so it just started giving me an uneasy feeling i knew that that was a problem i wanted to go solve differently i wanted to go try to um companies more aware of that, try to go solve the defensive side of that. But it wasn't really aligned uh, with uh, what we could do there because Battelle is a, a nonprofit. And really, I felt like a product, like a a security vendor needs to solve this problem to make it work. And that was what started making me
2: think about leaving Battelle at that point was, you know, it
1: started to get uh, to be a bigger uh, company uh, it wasn't really a startup anymore and I really started having an itch to go solve this problem so what was next so I was very interested in doing that but I was also terrified of the idea of starting a company um, uh, because my art. entire uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly in the back of my mind startups were people sleeping under their desks uh, around the clock taking massive pay cuts and hopefully one day it's all going to pay off. And uh, I had, you know, a nice job, a, a good career at Patel, but it was also my only experience uh, in a professional setting at that point. I had done lots of work with lots of different, very demanding government customers and, and solved some really interesting problems, but I didn't really know what it was like outside of those, those walls. And so starting a company was interesting, but I decided that, seeing a startup from the inside was probably the best way for me to get get some experience. And so uh I joined another startup called Redacted, which has a you know, very clever uh name as we've talked about, and had a complete shift in culture and environment uh and mission, uh everything that was just completely foreign to me. So I, I had this opportunity through some friends, uh, Redacted, uh, was founded by Max Kelly, who was the first uh, chief security officer at Facebook and then uh, also uh, did work at NSA and FBI prior to that. There are a lot of ex-intelligence community folks who who worked there. And so it was a nice like culture that I was familiar with uh, from my time in the government, working with the government. You know so what? I started that, working there. That's an interesting point you make. If someone's looking
0: at a LEAP you can leap to something completely foreign, everything is new, or you leapt to something that was at a stage that was new and it was an entity formation that was new, but it had all kinds of connective tissue to things you did know and people you knew and institutions you knew and had worked with. That's a that's an interesting thing to be thoughtful about if someone says yeah. you can lower maybe some of that stress by saying, look, there's a lot of things I did know and people I could rely on maybe, I could just imagine a variety of connective tissue, essentially, that made that leap maybe less than if you get do a total foreign body. Yeah.
1: A hundred percent. Uh it was a major factor in my decision was it felt familiar enough that I thought I could be successful, but it was foreign enough that I knew I was gonna learn a lot very quickly. Yeah. And yeah. and that was true, very true. And, you know, I went from having to work in skiffs where like I couldn't have my phone. Uh, you know, there were times where my wife didn't know, you know, if I got a car accident on the way home or if I was working late, because there was no way to get a hold of me and could only talk about things in this one room to I interviewed at this company. I never I did not meet a person face to face in this company until six months into my time there. Uh it was all done over Zoom. I uh it was I was working from home, I was using Slack for the first time. Everything was very different. The way we operated was completely yeah. different. There were no more expense reports and time cards and all of this stuff that I was I was used to. So so it was very, very foreign, very enlightening. I learned a ton and met a lot of really great people uh, at that company, and, uh, and had a had a good experience. Uh, one that I you know I stayed there for about a year before I before I started finally stayed though, because I knew you know in my heart that's what I what I really wanted to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So mission accomplished in that sort of thought process you
1: had and the reason you yeah. did that. So you know what's funny is when I was thinking about starting a company. The things that I was afraid of, that told me you can't do this, you don't know how to do this, were things that you'll you'll probably find funny now. It's it's like, well, how do you do payroll and how do you deal with taxes and how do you get an office and how about like contracts and legal and like I I don't even know the first thing about the doing
2: of everything
1: of all the things, right? Yeah. I'm like, oh no, I've got a great idea and I I, I can build a team and all that. That's easy, but like, how do I Actually, create a company, and it's funny in retrospect. It's so backwards because that is the easiest part of starting a company. Like the answer is you just outsource it to someone who does it. Um, like you need someone to do finance for you for a little bit. There's plenty of companies you can outsource accounting and finance to. You need legal help. You hire a lawyer. You need uh you need to to pay your folks. Use a payroll provider or PEO. Easy. That stuff is easy. That was not what I should have been scared about. The hard part of starting a company is. is having a, a good strategy, having a market that uh, has a problem, understanding product what that set. is, finding product market fit, like yeah. delivering a product, figuring out yeah. how to engineer it and make it reliable and do that. Like those are the hard things. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what I was afraid of. I was, you know, trying to understand what it's like even inside of a company. And so, yeah, like mission accomplished very quickly. It was every time I looked, you know, learned about it, I was like, oh, you just hire the peo they do that that's easy okay i don't know why i was afraid of
2: that
0: yeah we i used the peo at two different companies over the last 25 years yeah but it's it's interesting yeah i i'm i totally get what you're saying there I it's it's easy to focus on all that mechanical stuff and the hard stuff is product market fit and like so you're interested in this product, but you don't have budget for it. Oh, I got to get able to actually buy this thing. It doesn't invalidate the idea. It doesn't mean it's not good. But if you don't have any money for it or you have 10 priorities ahead of ever paying for this, you know, all, all that's the market timing, you know. So, yeah, those are the thornier, exactly. uh, the thornier, bigger issues and harder to see through, uh, you, you know, or, or early on for sure. Yep. And I
2: get that. Yep.
1: I was going to say the other thing that probably everyone is afraid of is how do you how do you fund the company, right? <laughs> Which is the other very difficult question and um and that was that was also where where I wound up getting lucky uh and uh happy to to dive into that too
0: yeah so let's let's talk about the nucleus of 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 leaping out and and starting it and um maybe maybe there's some advice in there um as you tell a little bit of that story And you can say here's some things that we did right you know make sure you do this or here's some things I wish I'd done either either one I think is super valuable to to listeners who are contemplating that like what if I did go out
1: on my own yeah so when you, you know, if you decide to start a company, you have a choice to make whether you want to start a company, you want to start a or you want to start a startup. And those are actually different things. Um, and I wanted to start a startup. And the reason was when I was looking at the problem that we wanted to solve with uh embedded device security, product security automating the vulnerability discovery process and, and looking at embedded firmware and all of this, it requires a lot of resources to get that going. Uh, there's some hard problems. Some of the problems were very research-oriented, and some of them were um, larger-scale engineering problems. I needed a team. I needed to be able to pay that team. And so to do that, I wasn't blessed with you know uh, a large uh, war chest of my own money to fund that, <laughs> like probably most people out there. Uh, I yeah. needed to go get outside capital. The reason I knew I could do that was because actually, when I was at Patel, uh, I met the folks from Drive Capital uh, because we—they were standing up shop in town. Uh, they were interested in what was going on in Columbus, where the technical innovations were happening, what else was going on, if there were opportunities for spinouts from different companies, um, just trying to get a lay of the land. And so I met Mark Kwame uh, and Andy Jenks uh, from from Drive while I was still at Patel and uh, started to develop a relationship with with those folks. And as I was thinking about starting my own company, uh, I knew I knew them and started to to build a closer relationship with Andy and said, hey, I'm, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think about this market? What do you think about the space? And again, I was lucky because I had built a relationship with him in a way that I could bounce ideas off of him. And he was Interested in what I was thinking about, and we were able to kind of collaborate on thinking through what a pitch deck should look like. What's going to resonate well with uh, with his partnership? Where should I be focusing my attention? Where should I get validation? How how can I prove this enough for investors that I can pitch and make it successful? And so we actually, you know, I think I iterated on my deck maybe. Fifty times uh, before yeah. I eventually pitched, and and then had a session to to pitch the Drive Capital partnership, which was another you know fairly terrifying moment in my life. Uh, you know, it's like a make or break sort of thing, and successfully pitched them and uh, got a a term sheet pretty quickly after that, and uh, raised the seven million dollar seed round to get the company started. So they were the only investor I had to pitch. We I was lucky. In that uh, we were able to get another investor to join the round. Jocelyn Goldfein from uh, Zeta Venture Partners, she was previously the, the VP of engineering at Facebook, was in town in Columbus for a conference, I think the week I pitched Drive Capital, and she had reached out to them asking if there were any entrepreneurs she should meet while she was here and she and I met and she joined the round and that was the end of my fundraise. And it might, I mean, it was very, very fast. Uh, I was very lucky in in that way. Um, but that's how how we got the initial funding for Finite State.
0: Yeah. I think though that you, you mentioned something that's super important for anybody listening. You know, having raised a ton of money myself, 50 iterations, practice, rehearsal, change, adapt. I think people sometimes think, oh, entrepreneurs come along and they just ask for some money and somebody gives it to them. You know, and maybe it'll work or maybe it won't when the fact is most are rejected. And there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, into acquiring uh, capital. And and the people that get this, they get to this point, this magical moment. of like, I've got a good answer. Even if the answer is, that's not a mystery question. We don't know the answer yet, but we thought of the question. I've got to a point where you're not going to stump me. I've got to a point where you're not going to ask me a question that makes, you know, that I'm going to basically look pretty stupid. Because like, oh, we never thought of that. I've iterated so much and I've taken so many feedbacks or you know gotten so much feedback that I'm I'm in this nirvana state where it's like I'm ready for the questions and that's the best you can ask for but that's earned you know there's a hidden amount of work that goes into that and I think that's not clear to people who've never done it they're just like oh yeah you put a PowerPoint together on Saturday on Monday somebody give you a million bucks very rarely <laughs> is that ever the case if it is even yeah. ever that.
1: but I think uh- entrepreneurs who are trying to raise capital learn this in different ways. I was lucky in that I had someone that I had a relationship with, which when when I do talk to other founders and they ask me this question, I say, it's actually a lot like sales. If you're trying to get someone to give you money, it's a lot easier to do that if you have a relationship with that person versus just knocking on their door and asking for them to write a check to you. Reaching out in a more open way and trying to figure out if you have connections to people who who are in the community of investors is actually a really nice way to do it because yeah. i had andy i was lucky was very open-minded and willing to work with me and iterate on it um versus just walking in and saying here's my pitch deck what do you all think would you like to give me some money now Every, they it would have been a no like obviously um and so other other entrepreneurs do it by by actually the, the latter method, which is walking into different VCs and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm Matt, here's my company idea. Would you like to invest? And you get a no, and then you go to the next one. You try again, you try again, and it helps you refine that. And so you do a lot of pitching, and eventually you can put a round together. Uh, that's an approach that works for some people really well, too. I still think, just like in sales, it is always easier if you have a champion, if you have a relationship with folks, if they know you uh, beyond just you know that one day. Uh, that goes a long way. And so that's that's something I tend to to tell other founders uh, they should strive for when they can. Yeah, and,
0: and I know the question that you, you're absolutely right, and the question you'll have in mind is, well, what if I don't already know those? Start thinking of asking you know, people that you know about who they know. I mean, you start building that network. If this is what you want to do or you think you want to do, you can start putting the plumbing together that lead to some of these relationships. Because, yeah, some of, them, some of them don't have them. Yeah. And uh, so it doesn't mean you have to do the brute force technique, Uh, which is how I had to start. I didn't have any, you know, and so I had to do the brute force technique. But you're right. When you know, and subsequent companies later, it was different for me. I knew people and they knew me. And yeah, that's an advantage. But you can start, who do I know that might know something about this? And sometimes that's lawyers and accountants. If you don't already know somebody that's in the space, uh, a lot of times law firms, they'll have somebody at the firm that absolutely is plugged into that scene. So you start talking to them and say, I I, I think I'm gonna start a company and I need to start understanding how capital is raised. That's the place to start if you're if you're at ground zero, right? If you don't know anybody.
1: Yeah, totally. I I also think uh a lot of different cities have different groups where there are yeah. entrepreneurs who are connected and they have groups uh investors will come and meet and greet people, they'll have pitch sessions, they'll have other, you know, just technology groups or interest groups where you can join and learn more about stuff and meet people and, and it's another good way to network and learn more about the yeah. space.
0: I joined, in fact, I, when I moved to Columbus, Ohio with my fledgling company, it wasn't really a company yet, just, you know, people working on it, everybody had jobs. The Columbus Venture Network, which I don't think exists anymore, DVN, huh, yeah. I didn't know anybody, so I went to some of their lunches and sort of people were pitching and there were these people called angel investors,
1: like, you know, what is this? And I just sat there like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. Having great ideas is important uh, when you're an entrepreneur, but also having good relationships and yeah. being driven and seeking out and trying to to make that happen and knowing that it takes relationships, it takes connections, it takes being willing to talk to people and uh, and, and to, to get to where you want to go is, is an important aspect of it. And it's a skill that you need as, as an entrepreneur, because especially in the early days, you're also going to be the first salesperson for your company. You know, it's the same skill set that you need to do to be able to go convince someone to take a huge risk on trying your brand new rickety product for the first time, especially if it's going into a sock or something like that. That's really important. Uh, it's yeah. hard to do, and you have to be able to convince people, and uh, and that's a skill that takes some practice. So,
0: all all great advice. Um, and we could spend an hour, you know, unpacking just this, this area. Right. Let's talk about, uh, you know, before we, we wind up, let's talk about what Finance State's doing. Um, I think it's an important area. It's a, it's an, an emerging area that's, uh, you know, got a lot of problems. And so you're, you know, like you like to challenge, uh, take on hard challenges, hard problems. And clearly that's, uh, I think, what you're doing. You know, talk about what you are doing. What is the mission?
1: Yeah, so our focus at Finite State is on product security and software supply chain security, which are very synonymous, but different depending on the user. But in short, what we're trying to do is understand the security posture of software that's either going into an organization or is being built, and that software oftentimes where we're focused, it's going onto a device, so it's firmware of some sort. Uh, This has become a big, big problem over the last five to 10 years. And it's becoming much more visible right now because we wind up having, you know, software has supply chains, just like we have supply chains for
2: physical goods.
1: Uh, You have components that are built by lots of different places and they get assembled and they get packaged and they get shipped. Software is built the same way and you have open source projects and you have, uh, especially when you're talking about embedded software that's going into a device, you may have different vendors that build different chipsets with drivers and SDKs, and then you build, you take open source software and you stack it on top. And then you layer some of your custom code on there and you run it through a tool chain and it turns into a binary blob and it gets flashed to a device. And what happens is that device then gets shipped to thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, users. No one really knows what the security of that software was. when you're buying it, you don't know. You just trust the brand that you're buying it from, or you don't. When, Even when you're developing it, you don't necessarily know the security posture of the software that your upstream providers are giving to you. If it's coming in binary form, or even if it's coming in a library, you might not test it or scan it. And then you have a problem where maybe the security of that software package was fine yesterday, but a new vulnerability comes out tomorrow. And you don't know if that vulnerability impacts that that software. And so we help with that. you know we're focused on automating the analysis of that software when it's in even if it's in a final binary blob that we have to analyze we can we can allow our users to upload that software into our platform. it automatically dissects it, tests it, looks for known and unknown vulnerabilities, and then uh, tells you about the risk of that at many different places in the supply chain. So most of our customers are actually on the software development side of things. So big device manufacturers, you know, one of the ones that we talk about uh, is uh, Schneider Electric, who's a big uh, uh, customer of ours and and uh, and partner of ours and actually investor of ours as well. Now they have to test their products as they're being built before they go out to their customers and they use Finix State to help them understand, you know, do a final check on all of that software before it goes to market and then. We also help them understand if if new vulnerabilities might affect their products before, you know, ideally before uh, attackers can figure that out.
0: Yeah, that that is uh, this last couple of years has been there's been some some canaries in the coal mine, uh, so to speak, some loud squawks of like things that uh, you have woken a lot lot more people up. Now you you're you're in five over five years of this, so you you started this prior to this being on as many radars as it is now for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's funny because when, when we started the company, we started talking to, to CISOs actually at different, in different verticals, including in the energy sector, financial institutions, uh, we were kind of all over the place, healthcare. And most of them said, you know what? Eh, I care a lot more about like phishing and stuff like that. than I care about the security of the devices that are going into my, into my organization. And we also talked to software developer or, you know, product developers and asked about how much testing they were doing. And, and it was kind of a, eh, you know, we're, we're doing some, but like no one really cares. And, and back then, five years ago, even it's hard to believe it's only been five years. But if you think about the known attacks against IOT devices, almost all of them were botnets. It was, we're going to target cable modems and routers. Cameras. for the purpose of building a botnet to go then take that yeah. DDoS someone. And the companies that were getting, like the devices that were getting popped, like there were no repercussions for the company that built the, the DVRs that were used in in the botnet attack. Yeah. It was the, the victim of the botnet that, that had to pay the price. That changed so rapidly in the last five years. Now all of a sudden, as we expected, as I expected, now that we're more dependent on all of these devices and now that the attackers migrated towards trying to cause more damage and, and you know moved much more towards a ransomware-based approach to making money versus selling access and selling data, the more consequence there was for a product, the more risk there was in that product. Yeah. And so OT equipment, medical devices, automotive systems, all of those things, all of a sudden Everyone started caring about caring about the security of those um, for good reason. And there have been numerous events, whether it's like the the major vulnerabilities that impacted different embedded devices, like Urgent Eleven, Ripple Twenty, or the wind supply chain attack that brought you know to light that that the software supply chains were not secure in the first place, and that can lead to, to serious consequences or ransomware attacks that are hitting different different sectors or OT attacks where it's showing that it, that Attackers are willing to try to cause disruption and do things that are particularly evil that we had hoped wouldn't actually happen. All of that has has really changed the dynamics of this market. Yeah,
0: thank you for uh, coming and sharing sort of your professional journey and um, and, uh, and some insight into what you're doing now, which is a super important area. So thank you for for uh, you know taking the leap um, from the big institution to you know to doing something innovative and, and new that we need. And uh and doing it in Columbus, Ohio, which is special for me. Uh, but uh I applaud applaud your efforts and, and energies and and uh so you know thank you for all that and for, for coming and sharing it today.
1: Thanks, Eric. I really uh, enjoyed the conversation and I really appreciate you having me on today.
0: Well, if you're ready, I like to end the show with uh uh sort of something that I've always liked uh, from a show I used to watch called Inside the Actors Studio. And the, the host who has unfortunately passed on James Lipton, uh he ended his Interviews with all the famous actors and actresses you can think of, you know, think 30 years or more of that show running. It may still be running with some new host. Mm -hmm. But he ended the show always with the same 10 questions that he borrowed from a French show, and it's called the Beauvau questionnaire. So it's the exact same questions, 10 questions, as far as I know, for (laughs) it could be 50 years old. And so I always like to end the show with the same 10 questions if you're up for it. I'm up for it.
2: Let's do it. All right. What is your favorite word? Transparency. What is your least favorite word? Ego. What turns you on creatively, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Building. Building things. What turns you off? Needing to over-communicate repeatedly. (laughs) What is your favorite curse word? (sighs) Uh, Fuck. It's very versatile. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of being outside in nature with nothing else. What sound or noise do you hate? I actually hate the ambient sounds of a really busy city with, like, car horns and buses. Like, if you open a window in Manhattan. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attend? Mm. I hope. I get to attempt being an investor one day so I can help other entrepreneurs. What profession would you like to not do? I've been told that I would be good at this, but being a lawyer,
1: um, I've been told by lawyers I would be very good at it, which I can't tell if that's a compliment or not,
2: but no, I don't want to do it.
0: (laughs) And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when
2: you arrive at the pearly gates? congratulations. You should be proud of what you accomplished.
0: All right. I'm just wrapping up with Matt Wickhouse, founder and CEO of Finite State. Thank you, Matt, for uh, coming on the show
1: and for sharing your your story. Thanks a lot, Derek. I really appreciate you having me on today. This was a lot of fun. All right. Take care. Be well. We'll talk soon.